In the 122nd Psalm, David said, I was glad when they said to me, let us come into the house of the Lord. And, you know, he didn't have the temple yet. And yet he had this vision of being together with the saints. And certainly future generations, as they read that song, it became a song of ascent as they were coming up on their yearly pilgrimages to Jerusalem, going up the temple steps, would see that. And the congregation of Israel was at its fullest at those moments when they were coming together. And I understand certainly that sentiment. It is a great thing for us to be together. What a beautiful blessing that God has commanded and given us this privilege on the first of the week to be united together in this way. It's great to see so many here this morning, so many accompanying us online as well. What a blessing that is, and it makes my heart glad. And I pray that our time together studying in His Word will build you up and make you glad that you were here today as well and that you'll share this with other people. We uh, often around Easter, we'll talk about the, the empty tomb. And it's an interesting thing to consider, the fact that there was this empty tomb. It is the, the basis of our faith that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. But there's something else that happened that's recorded for us only in Matthew's account here, that there were many empty tombs. And I often like to consider talking about these other empty tombs. We're not given a whole lot of information but what we're given is interesting to look at here in Matthew's account. And I've always kind of wondered, I wonder what they said when they went back into town. What kind of things would they have talked about? Well, we can only conjecture about that. But there are things we're told in the text here that I think are interesting for us to examine and consider why did God include this account here. So as we're looking at this text in Matthew 27, verses 45 through 54, what we're going to see first is that there's a series of seven and clauses in verses 51 through 53. In my version, actually, it begins with, then behold, the veil of the temple was torn. But the older versions have the word and here. It's the same uh, Greek word used all through here in verses 51 through 53. So I'm going to read it as it were in the Greek. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn. Maybe one of your versions actually has that instead of then. And so it begins with this veil of the temple being torn and the earth quaking, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints were raised, and coming out of the graves, and they appeared to many. And so, as I said, the more literal translations will have and in each one of these. Some will have a different word in English here. But there's seven events that are directly related to Jesus' death here. That Matthew points out that these things that happened as a consequence of his death. He died and then these things therefore happened. So Matthew is tying and exalting the power of Jesus' death by tying all of these events to this moment that he, that he expired on the cross, that he gave up his life on the cross. And so, behold, the veil of the temple was torn. By his death, Christ opens the way for men to serve God. This is a very visible thing that happened. It was torn from top to bottom. This was a very large uh, piece of fabric or very large tapestry that it, that it was made there, several uh, feet, several meters in, in height, and it was torn from top to bottom. It was not something that some man went in and did. And so we see very clearly in the writings in the book of Hebrews, we see very clearly what this indication was, that God has now made the way of access available through rending the veil. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 15. Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, 
how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this reason he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. The language here is a bit strange, especially if you don't know Leviticus and Numbers very well. But there was this sprinkling of the ashes of a red heifer on those who had contact with a dead body, who had come into contact with a human body, not just animal, unclean animal bodies. That was a different uh, series uh, of, of events that needed to happen. But there's this sprinkling of the red heifer for the purifying of the flesh. And if that was possible for purifying the flesh, how much more, the Hebrew writer says, shall the blood of Christ purify our consciences? The idea is that there is forgiveness of sin and there's no longer a memory of sin. We have been given clear access into the presence of God and not just into some physical terrestrial tabernacle, but into the very presence of God as Christ tears that veil away. And it's through the blood of Christ that we're given that, that access. Uh, continuing on in Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 23, verses we're more familiar with perhaps. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. It's beautiful that God not only taught this through the, uh, the shadow of the Old Testament, but he literally allowed this to be seen in the rending of the veil, as the veil of Christ's flesh was then also torn, and this opening was made so that we can come into the very presence through this new and living way that he consecrated us through the veil, that is, through his flesh. This was a visible account. As that happened, also something else back in Matthew 27 now, the earth quaked. <laughs> It's amazing here. At his death, the earth that he made trembled. He is the creator after all. John chapter 1 verses 1 through 3 says he was there in the beginning with God. All things that were made were made through him. Verses 10 and 11 of John chapter 1 says he came to his own and they did not receive him. But you remember as, as the creator, he is the one who, who put the very foundations of the earth down. And so that is he came to deliver his law to Israel. There's a, there's a picture here of the strength and the power of his word. Exodus chapter 19, as he comes down over the mountain to deliver the law. This is Mount Sinai. Exodus 19, starting at verse 16. Here is the creator speaking, and watch the reaction of the earth. came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, and the sound of the trumpet was very loud, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now, the Mount, now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked greatly. So you've got the mountain quaking, the earth being moved, the people being moved and trembling at the power of God. And the Hebrew writer picks up on that idea. He really is quoting from Haggai. But we'll look at it in Hebrews chapter 12. This concept of the earth being shaken at the power of the word being revealed. So God made the earth. Jesus is the creator of the earth. He delivered the law in Exodus and shook the earth. In Hebrews 12, verses 25 and following, 
See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. But think about the image here. As Jesus has created the earth and at his death, the earth quakes. He is establishing a new covenant, a covenant that cannot be shaken. But his own voice shakes and rends the earth. He splits the veil and now he splits the very rocks around. It's an amazing picture as the earth is quaking and the rocks were split. At his death, the stones that would have cried out that he was the son of God. You remember in Luke, as he's coming in, uh, he's coming into Jerusalem, people are crying out, here comes the son of David, here comes the son of the Lord. And people are saying, make him be quiet, that's blasphemy. And it's, they're told, if they don't cry out, these stones will cry out. The very stones that would have cried out were now split open. What we end up seeing is that his word is the only foundation that's unshaken. His word is the only rock that's not split. In Matthew chapter 7, he said, if anyone does the things that he says, it's like building on that firm foundation. His is the rock that will never be shaken and will never split. But here's the part that I find most interesting. The graves were opened. Literally, as we have all of these kind of pictures going on here as Matthew's recording for us, the earth shaking, the veil ripping open, the rock splitting. As the rock split, the very earth splits open and the grave is defeated at Jesus' death. Literally, the graves are opened. And so the rocky tombs, they were a place cut into the rocks, were split open and spilled their contents. And so it's Christ's death, we see, that paid this price that is, after all, man's due. As he tasted death for us, he broke the curse that held men to the grave. And there's a literal picture of this that happens. God allows this, this word picture, if you will, literally to take place. It's amazing that we have this recorded for us. It's amazing we don't have it recorded in more places. As incredible as this must have been. But we have it recorded by the direction of the Holy Spirit for us here. So in Hebrews 2, I know I'm going back and forth to Hebrews a lot, but there's the tie-ins are so rich here. Hebrews 2 verse 9, we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God might taste death for everyone. On the cross, he tasted death. And we're told a little bit more about what that is in verse 14 of Hebrews 2. Inasmuch as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted." So literally at his death, he broke the bonds of the grave and some people came out of the grave. This happened. 
to prove that he is the one who has that power. Philippians 2 verse 8 said he was obedient and obedient to death and death on the cross. That's where he tasted death for all men. And finally, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 9 and 10, we get Paul's uh, mention here of this great sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 9 and 10. He says, God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. There are those who, at the moment of Jesus' death, were lamenting that he was being taken away from them. He had promised that he was going to come back. They were awake at that moment, and the only hope they had was that his promise of the resurrection was true. There were those who were asleep, as Paul puts it here in 1 Thessalonians 5.10, who perhaps didn't even know of the promise, and yet they came out of their graves to receive this promise of a resurrection at the moment of Jesus' death here. Now, it says that many of the bodies of the saints were raised. It is the resurrection that holds our promise. It is very clear to us. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the whole argument of that chapter is, if Jesus did not resurrect, then our faith is futile. We must believe in a resurrection because Jesus is the proof of that. But Matthew is tying these resurrections here to the power of Jesus' death. I think the text indicates they only came out of the graves when Jesus resurrected. It's possible that literally they only resurrected when Jesus did. But Matthew here is tying their resurrection to what happened as Jesus died on the cross. That's why it's mentioned here in this context. They came out after Jesus, uh, Jesus came out. So it's possible they were only really resurrected literally and physically at that moment. But somehow, Matthew is showing us that it's Christ's death that broke death's hold over all men. So what we're seeing here, and I call this a mini-resurrection, and please don't underestimate the power of resurrection. I don't mean that this is something, in some way, a miniature type of, of miracle. The idea here is, this is not a complete resurrection. This is not all of the power of resurrection that God has. In fact, not all were resurrected. It says, some, many bodies of the saints came. Why not all? This is not the resurrection. It is a shadow. It is a picture of the resurrection. It is showing the immense power that Christ's death had. But not all were raised, and we know that all of these who were raised are going to have to die again. It's a pale picture of the resurrection where people will be raised never to die again. Something interesting here. Many bodies of the saints were raised and coming out of the graves. They didn't just kind of remain in the grave. Remained there alive, but in the grave, can you imagine what that would have been? They came out. So Jesus' death doesn't create some kind of a mystical purgatory. <laughs> it would be awful to, to wake up in the grave and then die again in the grave. That would have served no real purpose. They came out of the grave. They had been entombed by sin, but they were now free to enter, as the text says, the holy city. Isn't it amazing another word picture we see there? Those who have been entombed by sin because of Jesus' death were now free to enter the holy city. Isn't that what we've been saying about ourselves? He tore away the veil. He's allowed us to enter into the holy presence of God, though we were entombed by sin at his death, at his resurrection, at his forgiveness through his blood, we now may enter the holy city, the very holy presence of God. As I mentioned at the beginning of our lesson, what a blessing that we come in to the house of God. That not only that, that we be called the house of God. 
not only allowed to go into his presence, but he calls us in as his family into his presence, and he makes us that holy city of his residence. This they did bodily. Look at verse 52. The graves were opened. Many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. It was not just some kind of spirits that were then loosed and allowed to go floating around through the walls and come in and visit family. People got up and walked out of the graves and walked into the holy city in bodily form and, and appeared to many. This is what is amazing to me. And this is what's amazing about there not being more written about this. These were the first witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. Think about that for a moment. These are the first witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. Later we see the apostles taking the witness of his resurrection all across the world. But these would have been the first witnesses, and they had a very special part in this. They participated in his resurrection. And I want to suggest to you this is also a word picture of who we are. It is certainly of who the apostles were, but this is who we are. Romans chapter 6 shows that word picture perhaps a little more clearly. But this is it for the first time. People who literally participated in Jesus' resurrection walked out and began to be a witness, a living witness for others who had not yet. But Romans chapter 6 has the same thing of us, beginning at verse 3. Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Do you recognize that as your witness? As one who's been baptized into the death of Christ and risen to a new life, you are witnesses of his resurrection by your very life. If it's been changed, as it ought to, in Christ. So their witness as the first witnesses of his resurrection, as the ones who could testify of the fact that they were risen from the graves, those who had seen them go in, now have received them back. How? How is that possible? Only by Jesus' death and his own resurrection. They are the first witnesses. And their witness then would make many other witnesses. Those who had seen those people come out would have to work out how did that happen. And then they would want to inform themselves and inform others. So I want you to look at this for a moment and think about all of this that happened right away. It's not like these things were developed over time and someone went back and started filling in the gaps of this doctrine. This was amazing where there were witnesses all around. And there was enough evidence at the moment to convince even Gentiles. <laughs> I love the response here in verse 54. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly this was the Son of God. Now, before we get too wrapped up in understanding these men were converted, I don't believe this is a statement of conversion. It is a statement of conviction regarding what they'd seen. They believe in gods of some sort. They understand that some men could have some sort of power beyond just what is natural. They don't understand God of heaven and how it's possible that these miracles happen. But they have seen a clear miracle, and they said, this must be one of the gods, or a son of one of the gods. They had conviction based on what they were able to see. They don't know much about Jesus, 
But they do know nobody else they've crucified did this. There is something very different about this man. Surely this was the Son of God. That helps us understand something, though. Miracles were never meant for conversion. It's not the miracles that convert. The miracles do convict, however. And there's a difference in those two words, and we need to be distinct about those. Miracles convict. The word is the means of conversion. The miracles confirm the word and convict about what the word is saying. This final miracle of Jesus, as he gives his life here, serves to confirm all that he's been saying about himself up to this point. You remember back in Matthew chapter 12, since we're in Matthew 27 here, I'd like to keep current and stay in what he said in Matthew's account. Matthew 12, verses 39 and 40. Some of the scribes and Pharisees, as verse 38, say, said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. <laughs> There's enough information here to confirm what he's been teaching. There's a conviction that happens here. Now, this is not all of the detail needed for a conversion, but it gets you thinking back to the word that he's been saying about himself all this time. It's an interesting detail here in Matthew 12. An adulterous and evil generation seeks after a sign. He's calling these Pharisees that keep questioning him after they've seen so much evidence and so many signs, they've heard the things he's saying. He speaks as God. Speaks with authority and not like the scribes. They see all of that and they continue to say, yeah, but just show us a sign. Just let us see one thing. Well, he's shown them so much. So he calls them an evil and adulterous generation. He's calling them children of adultery. <laughs> Who is it that seeks proof that their father is really their father? <laughs> it's children of adultery. <laughs> it's not the natural children of the father. They recognize their father. They're like him. They listen to his word and they, they follow it. He called them children of adultery. Well, that falls so hard on what the prophets have said all through time about the Israelites. They saw and clearly heard that he was speaking for God, and they said, but yet, show us something other. Show us some other proof. And Jesus said, I won't show any more except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he's speaking of his death, burial, and resurrection. So he's given them this proof of who he was. So it's interesting then that what we see tying to this later with the, with the Spirit coming to help, Mark chapter 16 now. Mark chapter 16, verses 19 and 20. As the word of his truth is going out, the Spirit is working together to convict, not to convert, but to convict. Mark chapter 16, verses 19 and 20. After the Lord had spoken to them, this is now him and the apostles, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. So the word they were speaking was God's word. Jesus and the Lord accompanied with these signs to convict based on the word. The conversion was not made by the, uh, the Spirit himself. Hebrews 2 speaks of the same uh, information there. In Matthew chapter 27, these Gentiles saw so much evidence, and they were willing to say, surely this is the Son of God, when the Jews showing themselves to be adulterous, said, we need more. <laughs> well, the truth is, Jesus left many tombs empty. We saw that through his ministry. During his life and ministry, he left the tomb of the widow of Nain's son in Luke chapter 7. He resurrected her son. His tomb was empty. They had it all ready to go. <laughs> the tomb of Jairus' daughter. She had died 
There were already the mourners there wailing. When he got there, he said, what's all this weeping and moaning about? She's only asleep. And then they ridiculed him. But her tomb remained empty. <laughs> the tomb of Lazarus. It was already filled for several days. And he got there and said, Lazarus, come forth. And people were saying, no, that's a bad idea. <laughs> He's not going to smell very good at this point. But then he came out. Lazarus' tomb was empty. By his death, the tombs of many saints, as we just saw here in Matthew chapter 27, were left empty. But as I mentioned before, this was a mini-resurrection. This is not the resurrection. All these tombs would one day be full again. These people would all come to die. They would all end up going back into these tombs. But by Jesus' resurrection... And here's where the real power is. Matthew's showing the power in his death. But if he had stayed dead, there might have been power in the sacrifice that he made, but it would have ended there. He would have just become another martyr, and we would not remember his name to this day. It's his resurrection where the true power is. And by his resurrection, then, of course, his own tomb remained empty, as he said it would, that he would come back on the third day. Let's continue reading here in Matthew 27 at verse, tw at verse 62. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Think about that for a moment. Here's the one they were saying, Show us proof that you're our father. This adulterous and evil generation, they've just called him the deceiver. They don't recognize him. That deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go your way. Make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him, and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and indeed he is going before you into Galilee. There, will, there you will see him. Behold, I have told you. It's amazing. Jesus had made an appointment for after his death, and he kept it. I was talking recently with some, uh, some brethren and uh, was talking about how I was interrogated when I came back from Europe converted. I came back as a Christian. And a lot of my friends from college said, Christianity? You know about all these other religions and you, you chose Christianity? Why? And I said, well, Jesus is the only one who made an appointment after his death and kept it. All the others said these great things were going to happen, but they're still in their graves. And if he can overcome the grave, he's the one I want to follow. That's what we're seeing here in Matthew chapter 27. He overcame the grave just as he said he would. By his resurrection, then logically, his own tomb remained empty. But something more amazing than that even. And it's amazing that he could call out his own resurrection. And, and it happened. He said his father loved him because he laid down his life and takes it up again. His father gave him that authority. That's an amazing thing. But the truth is, because of Jesus' resurrection... Every tomb will be left empty, including yours. I don't know if you ever thought about that. I remember when I was a child and I would drive past cemeteries, I used to wonder, I wonder if that's where I'm going to be one day. 
in this one, or, or if it's this one over here, or where I might end up. But then I started to study the Bible. And I realized it doesn't matter. It's temporary. <laughs> that tomb is going to be empty. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in that great discussion about the fact of Jesus' resurrection, Paul points to this. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 22. Now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Jesus had already spoken of that in John chapter 5. As he was trying to help the Jews to understand the hope that he was bringing them. John chapter 5 verses 28 and 29 he says, Do not marvel at this. For the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. So Jesus during his lifetime left many tombs empty. But all those tombs were filled again. But by his resurrection, he is promising and offering to leave your tomb empty. But there is something we need to consider. There's no condition to resurrection. There's not. The fact of Jesus' resurrection means that all will be resurrected. That's what 1 Corinthians 15 says. All are going to be resurrected. That's an amazing thing to think about. There's no condition to that. That's going to happen. But there are conditions for the resurrection of life. The one he was talking about in John chapter 5. All who are in the tombs will hear his voice. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. Those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. There's two different destinies once we've come out of the grave. We're all coming out of it. So we look at Mark chapter 16 and verse 15. I want to use this word that's been used all through this text in Matthew. That means at Jesus' death, therefore these things happened. I want to see that same word in Mark chapter 16 and verse 15 and 16. Jesus said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. That's the same and there. It's, it's an and that means because of this and then this other thing. And what we're looking at here is the condition toward the resurrection of life. It is believing and therefore, because of that belief, being baptized. Those who believe and based on their belief are baptized will be saved. Your tomb is going to be empty. Where will you be when you come out of that tomb? Jesus' death was a powerful demonstration of what God had sent him to do, to taste death for all of us. Even the Son of God did not escape physical death. And unless he returns before the day of our death, we won't escape it either. But he has promised that none of us will leave here the way we go into the grave. We'll come out of the graves, we'll be transformed into spiritual bodies, and those spiritual bodies will either be for the resurrection of life or the resurrection of condemnation. But it's while we're in the body that we have the opportunity to make the decision that'll change where our final destination is. Would you believe, and based on that belief, be baptized today? That's the formula that Jesus used. That's the way Jesus said things have to happen in order to enter in to the resurrection of life. If you're not a Christian, today is the day to make that right. If 
you understand what the Lord teaches in his word, if you're willing to confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and to come forward repentant of your sins, to have those washed away, you can become a Christian today. You can have your destiny changed forever as you're pointed toward that resurrection of life. If as a Christian you've stumbled, you've forgotten about the power of his death and the power of his resurrection, let them move you again. The very words and the very power that shook the earth, let them shake you to the point that you bow down before the Lord again and say, I want to be your servant. I want to come to you. Whatever we can help you with today, if your need is to come before the Lord, we want to help you with that. Won't you come and, and, and let us know while we stand and sing this song to encourage your decision.